0: Okay, uh, ready to study the scriptures? <laughs> You're ready to listen to the scriptures. That's okay, it's all right. Um, let's, let's pray, and I want, I'm not going to ask you to get your Bibles here for another few minutes, so, and I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about the story, and you can listen, all right? So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for popcorn. What a good idea. And uh, we thank you for uh, all of your blessings upon our lives, and we just are here today. We want you to illuminate our minds change us if need be, transform us, make us into your image, and help us to understand who you are and what you want to do with us. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we've been discussing uh, resurrection people. Uh, which is our current series. Uh, We started on Easter Sunday. Uh, Last week, we talked about Luke chapter 24. It was a fantastic chapter. If you've never read it before, you need to read it. It shows Jesus appearing, going in and out of different places and showing himself, his resurrected body to people. And uh, it's an incredible place uh, to begin this journey when talking about resurrection people. And I I believe that there should be a difference for us. We are resurrection people because there's something different about us. There's something that is life-giving about people who belong to Christ, people who have experienced him. And I believe that we should identify what those differences are. We should we should know exactly who we are and exactly what Jesus wants us to do. And so that's what we're doing today. And so today the this um This title is called The Community of the Unqualified, the Inept, and the Undeserving. (laughs) Resurrection people are a community of the unqualified, the inept, and the undeserving. And I want you to see this in the the Scripture. We're going to begin with our cornerstone Scripture of Ephesians chapter 1 and I'll read it to you, and you can listen while you chew on the popcorn. For those of you listening by podcast, we served everybody popcorn and pop this morning in the movie theater, because that's the way we roll. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints and His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at at His right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. This essentially says that the Apostle Paul is praying for you and for me, was praying for the Ephesians that they would know the hope to which they were called, they would get the riches that have been poured out in their lives through Jesus Christ, and that they would understand the power of God that is available to them, that is living in them as they believe that there is life in us, resurrection life. Now we're gonna we're gonna look at uh, John chapter twenty, but I want to identify for you one of the great concerns that I have about the American church, and it's not just the American church. I think it's always the tendency of church organizations or church people to gravitate to this idea, and it is the idea of the professionalism of Christianity. The professionalism of Christianity. So much is available to us. Somehow in our churches, we tend to look to the experts, We tend to want to make experts out of our pastors, out of our leaders, and we want them to fix our problems for us. It's kind of like if you want to fix your car. Have you tried to fix your car recently? If you've got any kind of a newer car, it's almost impossible. I mean, for a guy like me. And I realized that mechanics, I mean, they have a real gift. I mean, it's an incredible thing to watch a mechanic diagnose a problem in a newer car. But typically what they do is they plug it into a computer, and the computer tells them what's wrong. It is the the expert that tells you how to fix your car. Now, I had a 1949 Chevy pickup. I bought it when I was 14 years old, and I bought it with paper route money. Isn't that cute? And I fixed it up when I was in high school, and now it continues to sit in my garage. It's kind of deteriorated over the last many, many years. And so it, it is due for a restoration project again. But it's pretty easy to fix that thing because it's just a few spark plugs, and you go right in the straight six, and there's a fan belt, and then there's one other thing, a jigger, that you've got to make sure is running on a belt, and then you're pretty good. But every time I would work on that truck, you know what would happen? I'd have to fix it like twice (laughs) or three times. Because every time I would fix it, I couldn't really fix it all the way. I'd like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, I should have done this. And I had to fix it twice or three times. And I realized as I've gotten older that that's just what mechanics do. (laughs) And I am unwilling to fix my car two and three times or four and five times. I got to take it to an expert. Now here's the problem. You take your computer to a technician to fix. You t- if your sprinkler system is broken, you call my dad. And you We have this expert mentality. We cannot allow this expert mentality to come into the church. The expert mentality says, I'm not good enough to do anything. I'm not able or available to fix anything. I'm not as good as Joe or Sally, or I could never lead this group the way they do. I don't have the kind of giftedness that this person has. I don't sing. I don't speak publicly. How can I do anything in church that's really of any value? And so you start to get an expert mentality within the church and look to the experts to fix all of our problems. And here's what I think is horrendous for us in the American churches. Many, many people, they attend church on the weekends, and it's the only Bible they get all week long. It's the only Bible knowledge they get all week long is what the pastor says from the front. I can just tell you, everybody, as good of a a Bible teacher as our pastors are, it's not enough. It's not enough. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, all the big cookies are on the bottom shelf. All the big cookies in the Bible are on the bottom shelf. You can read it for yourself. In fact, you better read it for yourself or you will be uh, able to be... uh, confused and manipulated by a guy who stands up and says whatever he wants to make the Bible say to you. I don't want you to believe me. I want you to hear me, and then I want you to take your Bible home and make sure it's true. The Bible is available to you to read yourself. You don't have to be the expert. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we say, I don't... I don't want to tell anybody anything. I don't want to put myself in a position of being a leader. And I'm certainly not able to disciple anyone because I'm just barely making it myself. It's all I can do to keep myself together. I can't care for somebody else. That was a little intense, wasn't it? But that's how some of you feel. Now, let me tell you this. This is the devil's best scheme. This is the devil's best scheme in making us passive and unproductive in the kingdom of God. All he has to do is make you think that you can't do something. Make you think that you can't lead. Make you think that you can't share. Make you think that you can't give something. And he's got you. He's got you unproductive. He has you convinced that somehow you're unqualified, you're inept, and undeserving. Here's the amazing truth. Resurrection life is for people just like that. Resurrection life comes into a person and changes them and transforms them. The devil doesn't have to take you completely out of the picture. He can just let you sit in a seat and take up space and keep you ineffective. Resurrection life is meant to come into us, to take us from where we are, to lift us from being broken, from being full of death and darkness, and to change us. Now, I want you to notice there's three people in the story that we read in the resurrection accounts. There's a woman called Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, she was really, in the account of John, was the first one to come and see Jesus. But I want you to notice she was a damaged woman. She was a damaged individual and full of darkness at one point. If you look in Luke chapter 8, here's what it says about her. After this, Jesus traveled about about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. There was something that had happened to this woman, and I love how Jesus does this. He always violates the cultural norm. He presses through the barrier, and he makes this woman full of demons, full of darkness. He makes her the first one that gets to see Jesus in his resurrected state. She's the first one who experiences resurrection life. She gets the distinction in all the scriptures as being the one. The one who witnesses it. The one who sees it. The one who is, who's experiences it. Then we see here Thomas. If you go back to John chapter 20, there's a story about Thomas here we're going to read together. It says in verse 24, it says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. See, because he, he had showed up on Resurrection Sunday and he revealed himself to the disciples. But Thomas wasn't there. And so verse 25 says, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Have you ever known anybody like this? Maybe, maybe you've been like this. Maybe this is you. You are the skeptic. Maybe you are the one who is always questioning, always challenging. Always challenging. We see Thomas in John chapter 14, just a few chapters earlier. Jesus is talking about going away, preparing a place for all of his disciples. And Thomas is the one who says, Jesus, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Um, We don't know where you're going, and uh, how can we know the way? Uh. See, Thomas probably wanted, he wanted people to know him as a realist. (laughs) With a little (laughs) negative slant. Because that is typically what pessimists, pessimists want to be known as. They want to be known as realists. Well, I call it like I see it. When really you're a skeptic. And listen, here's the thing. Here's the beautiful, wonderful thing about this. Jesus loved the skeptic. He loved him and he made it okay for him to believe. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. He says, I will not believe it. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace with you. I love how Jesus does this. All the doors are locked. They're afraid because, man, Jesus has been killed brutally, and they may be coming after them next. So here they are inside a house. The room is locked. They're not sure what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. Woo! I, peace with you. You can imagine this, the, the, the disciples saying, well, stop scaring us. You're scaring us to death. So here Jesus appears in this room. Verse 27 says, then he said to Thomas, I love how he does this. He appears, he says, here, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Here's what I think Jesus is interested in for every one of us. We're all on this journey. We're all going through a process. We're all at different places in the journey. And sometimes it seems like a long ways to go, like you've got a long way to go. There's no doubt about that. I feel it. You feel it. We all feel that way from time to time. But Jesus is committed to appearing to you. Jesus is committed to allowing you, to giving you opportunity to believe. Sometimes we continue to resist. Sometimes the skeptic continues, refuses to believe. But Jesus is interested in revealing himself and giving you an opportunity to believe. But here's what I want you to hear. It's okay to be the skeptic. Jesus is not afraid of your doubts. God is not afraid of your questions. I was taught by a man named Oral Roberts to pursue your doubts. To pursue your doubts. Because when you pursue your doubts all the way to the end, you know what you're gonna find? You're gonna find Jesus standing right there. He's not afraid. In fact, the life of faith, if you just think about it, there is no way to eradicate doubt from your life. Those people that tell you that doubt is totally conquered, and you don't have to, you don't have to question anything again, it's It's really not true because the life of faith only happens in the face of doubt. Are you tracking with me on this? Are you tracking with me on this? Faith is required. Jesus requires us to live a life of faith with him. He requires us to leap. He requires us to leap. And so there is no way to eliminate every little corner of doubt from your heart. What you have to be willing to do is give it over. What you have to be willing to do is surrender to it. Now, Jesus shows up to Thomas and he says, I want you to put your hands in my side. I want you to see. Now, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. If you were holding your Bible and you didn't want to get it all greasy from the popcorn, you would underline that phrase right there, my Lord and my God. He wasn't just using the Lord's name in vain. He wasn't going, wow, oh my gosh. He was actually saying something quite profound. He was the first one in Scripture. He has the distinction to be the first in Scripture to proclaim the divinity of Jesus. My Lord, my God, you appeared to me. You revealed yourself to me. You showed me your scars. You allowed me to touch you. I saw you die on that cross, and here you are in this room. You are God. Jesus is interested in the people who have been chained in darkness and the people who have doubted. He's interested in them being involved in his plan. So no matter where you are today, no matter where you come from, no matter what's going on in your life, Jesus' plan for you Is he wants to use you. You may feel unqualified. You may feel undeserving. Somehow you may feel inept. But I can tell you, Jesus wants to use you. You, The third example would be Peter. Peter, you see him in, in John 21. We won't take time to read that. But Jesus is challenging him. He's asking him if he loves him. But this is in response to Peter denying him on the night that Jesus was taken. If you turn over there to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, you see it in verse 54, says, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. But when he had kindled, they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down with him. So Peter's there. He's warming his hands at the fire. And a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said a little later someone else saw him and said you are also one of them man I am not Peter replied about an hour later another asserted certainly this fellow was with him for he is a Galilean he could tell the way he spoke he was a country bumpkin he was not from the city he was out there from Galilee And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Notice verse 62. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He went outside and wept bitterly. Now for some of us, there may be some bitter weeping. There may be some mistakes, some foolish decisions, some pivotal moments in our life where we, where we do the wrong thing. But I want to encourage you that Jesus picked Peter. Jesus chose Thomas. Jesus chose Mary. And these flaws in their lives did not deter him. I want you to notice in Acts chapter 2 what happened. Peter got up and he begins to speak. He begins to preach the message of the gospel. He explains the Old Testament, the fulfillment of the Messiah coming. And he shares it with all these people. And you know what happened? He gets to the end and he says, repent and believe all of you. And 3,000 people showed up and said, we believe. Peter did that. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times because he was scared and insecure, because he was full of fear, didn't know what to do. Resurrection life is not for the perfect, the gifted, or the skilled. Resurrection life is the presence of God breathed into dead, weak, and broken people, Dead, weak, and broken people. That's what was happening right here in Peter. That's what was happening in Thomas. That's what was happening in Mary and the entire group of friends that Jesus was revealing himself to. Resurrection life was being breathed into them. Can I tell you something? Can I just highlight an idea for you that I think is so important for every one of us to understand? God doesn't call the prepared. He prepares the called. God doesn't call the prepared. He prepares the called. So you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, but that you, you don't know my life. You don't know what's going on in, in, in my world. I mean, you don't know what kind of terrible habits I have. I don't need to. Jesus knows and He's still calling you. He's still calling you and He wants to prepare you. He wants to show you the way. He wants to breathe his resurrection life. Jesus wasn't looking for leaders who could serve. Hear me now. Jesus wasn't looking for leaders who could serve. He recruited servants who he could make into leaders. He created people who knew how to do little things. He, he, knew, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't trying to get leaders recruiting all the best of the best. He was trying to make a team, we, like the draft. You know, the NFL draft is on this weekend. He, there's like, everybody's talking endless discussion about who's the best and what position and how, what their stats are and the best teams, you know, how they're working out. Everybody wants to get the best player. That's not God's way. He's not looking for the best player. He's looking for people who are willing He's looking for people who are will willing to serve, and then He'll prepare them and make them into something great. Are you with me? Turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. I want to share this little verse with you. Many of you have heard me share it before, but... This is Peter and John, two people that had experienced resurrection life and power with Jesus. Verse 13 says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The presence of Jesus was on them. The Spirit of God had come upon them and they they were courageous. Now look at this word, unschooled. You know what that word means? That word in the Greek is idiotes, idiotes, an ignoramus, an ignorant or unlearned person, an idiot. That's the root root phrase of that word right there, that unschooled word. He noticed that they were idiots, but they saw their courage and they said, these people have been with Jesus. That's what I want people to say about you and me. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. It's not that God can't use gifted or skilled people. He can. Okay? It's, I'm not preaching that God can't use gifted people. He wants to use them. All right? You're not, if you're extremely skilled and extremely gifted... You're not out of the picture either. God still wants to use you. You know, all you husbands are turning to your wives. Yeah. Now, he can, but the issue is, the issue with God is, the issue with Jesus, the issue with resurrection, life, and power is it is especially for idiots. God especially uses he specializes in using idiots he specializes in making really wonderful things out of bad things specializes in turning a life upside down now why does he do this why would this be his specialty turn to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians chapter 20 chapter 1 verse 26 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, look what this says. It says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Okay, take a moment. Ready? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when Jesus called you. Yeah, that was a mess. I was a mess. Now, (laughs) I was a little child. (laughs) But I know now, at 45 years old, all of my tendencies... And I can project back and see what would have happened to my life. I can see how sin could have gripped my life and taken charge of it. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Yeah, you know, that, that, des- that describes this group right here, I think. Pretty good. Don't you think? Any noble birth people here? One. Okay. Well, great. Awesome. Jesus can still use you. Here it is. He says, uh, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Are you catching it? Why does he do it? Read verse 30. It is because of him. That you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. The reason God does it this way is because he's interested in everybody giving glory to him. The reason this happens this way is because he wants people to see him. He wants people to see the idiots running around. (laughs) And then realizing, wow, look at those guys. I mean, I thought they were a little funny, but really, that's, there's something courageous there. There's something that I don't, I don't have in my life. There's power there. There's life there. I, I, want, I want what they have. Who is it that gives them what they have? Resurrection life and resurrection power comes into us and changes us and makes us different. It's the one of the best ways that God get, gets glory for all that he does in us. And make no mistake, Jesus invites us to do what he does. Jesus invites us to do what he's doing. In fact, in the Gospels, we won't take time to read it right now, but what he says is, he says, greater things then these things that I'm doing now, you'll do because I'm going to my Father and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. It's not just going to be me wandering around, roaming around, walking and being sort of limited to where I can be at one time. You know, Jesus would appear in those meetings with the disciples through locked doors. It would just be him. Hi. See, that was, but he could only be there. And then he would disappear. (laughs) And then he would go somewhere else. And then his plan, the beauty of his plan is that he's going to go to heaven. In in just the the next chapter after John 20, you see Jesus ascending into heaven through the clouds. And he says, he tells them, I'm going to, I promised you, I will send you the Holy Spirit. And so he sends us the Holy Spirit who is God's presence on the earth to live in you and to live in me. The way that resurrection life is breathed into us is by the Holy Spirit, by acknowledging that He is here, by acknowledging that you want Him in your life. You still may be an idiot, but Jesus specializes in giving the Holy Spirit to idiots. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Just a couple more scriptures and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Ephesians chapter two, I want you to see this. This is, this is just after our cornerstone scripture and this is the Apostle Paul. He continues into this way of thinking. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See, each one of you, each one of us, We used to have a different spirit living in us, influencing us. It was the spirit of the devil who lives in the world and who has an entire army of his minions and demons that influence people. Make no mistake, you're in a spiritual war in this world. But here's what happened to you. Verse three, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. By the way, this is what makes you an idiot the cravings of your sinful nature. I got a phrase for you, all right? I want you to write this down because this is a good one, all right? So even if you got a little, you know, popcorn on your, popcorn grease on your hands, here's what I want you to write down sin makes you stupid. It really does. The more you do it, the, the more you engage in things, the cravings, you try to fill your cravings, the cravings of your sinful nature without Jesus, the more stupid you get. Which, and you can see it all over the map. You can see when people are addicted, when people are addicted to things that um, are destroying them, they're trying to supply the cravings of their own nature, they're trying to just get something that feels good. They're just trying to, to be a little bit more happy. You know, I was, I was downtown the other night and all these people were down there and they're walking around, you know, near 6th Street and we were, we were um, having, having dinner. And I was struck once again by this craving of the sinful nature that people are just trying to get a little bit of joy. They're just trying to feel better about themselves and their lives. And so they go down there and they fill themselves with alcohol and with drugs and with sex and hope that that will make it better. But instead, it just makes them more stupid. Isn't that sad? It's so sad. But that is not where Jesus leaves you that's not where Jesus leaves us. In fact, he chooses you. He wants to breathe resurrection life into you. Watch what happens here. It says um, in verse four, uh, well, let's, let's do verse three again. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, we were filling ourselves with all this garbage. And Jesus started breathing. He started making it happen. He gave himself. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up. Everybody say, raised us up. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's the power that the Apostle Paul was talking about, the authority. He says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's raised us up. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what tendencies you have, He's breathing resurrection life into you. Resurrection people are people who weren't qualified they were they were inept and they were undeserving but God begins to work on them he begins to change them he begins to transform them as long as they'll yield to him and he didn't leave us here alone he gave us his holy spirit he gave us his spirit to speak to us and help us and challenge us last scripture second tim second peter chapter second peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this His divine power. Everybody say divine power. This same divine power, the resurrection power that you've been given, has given us everything we need. Everybody say everything we need. Oh, don't you wish, oh, don't you wish there are moments in your life where you're like, I just forget that. I think I don't have everything I need. So I start trying to accumulate. I start trying to pull things in. I start trying to fill my cravings with money or with relationships or something else that God's not really in. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His his glory and goodness. His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature Ooh, you should get your pen right there and underline that little phrase you get to participate in the (laughs) you get to participate in the divine nature that is listen okay that means you don't have to stay the idiot That means the idiot gets a new nature. That means something else happens to you. You get resurrection power, resurrection life. It's a little awkward, Darren, isn't it? Sorry. (laughs) It's awesome. It's amazing. You and I get to participate in the divine nature. That's why you get up in the morning and you read your Bible and you pray. Because you're reminding yourself, (gasps) I have the divine nature in me. God is enough for me. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness. Spirit of God, would you lead me today? Protect me, help me. I have thoughts in my head that I hate. Would you help me fill my thoughts with other things? Let, let, me, let me memorize this verse here, and I want to meditate on this verse all day long to replace the terrible thoughts that I have that invade my mind. Jesus Fill me today with resurrection life. That's participating with the divine nature. When you come to church on a Sunday morning, when you're tired and you stayed out late and you really are sleepy, but you come to church anyway and the band starts going and things start happening and you sense the spirit of God in you and he fills you up and reminds you of who you are. Those are resurrection people. They're not perfect. They don't have everything figured out. They are in process. They are working towards it. At this very moment when we read about in John chapter 20, Mary and Thomas and Peter, they're in the process of reorienting their world. They'd been following Jesus for three years and they still didn't quite get it. And then they started reorienting and it was confusing. It was challenging to them. And as they continued to breathe in the resurrection life of God as it began to dawn on them what's really happening here. They were changed. Same thing that happens to me and to you. God's calling you. He wants you to respond to him. And he doesn't just want you to respond to him in some kind of ethereal kind of, oh well, you know, Jesus, here you go, I'll give you my life. No, that means there's gotta be practical, tangible stuff that you are engaged in doing, and he's empowering you to do it. Whether it's serving out here on setup, the setup team, or it's making sure that your spouse has everything that she needs because you've been fighting a little bit, you gotta you gotta put some practical work to it because the life of God is in you, and as you begin to act in that way, as you begin to act in a way that understands who you are and what you've been given, Jesus breathes even more. That guy, that guy believes and he's acting on his belief. I'm going to give him more power. That woman hasn't respected her husband in years, but she's trying to do the right thing now. He's not worthy of respect, but she's trying to respect him. I'm going to give her more grace to do it. That's what resurrection power does. And you are able to do it. You are capable to lead. I tell you, I'll tell you this right now. Last thing I'll say. A bunch of you have been coming to one chapel for a while, and you could lead. And you should be leading. But you're too busy, you're too full of other things, your life is going all kinds of you need to make some decisions and some changes in your priorities and lead. Lead other people, invest in other people. God's qualified you. He's making you into His vessel, His instrument. He wants to use you to minister to people like Peter, like Thomas, who built a huge church in India, most Bible scholars believe. There is an important thing that God is calling you to. I don't know exactly what it is, but I know that your gifts, God's giving you gifts, God's giving you His Spirit, and He wants you. He wants you to do what he's asked you to do. He wants you to be involved in building the kingdom. He wants you to be involved in building the church and building other people. And you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. I feel like like President Obama. Yes, we can. Let's pray. Father, here we are in this place and we've studied your scriptures, we've looked at what you say about us and some of us, are, um, some of us are realizing we've been acting like we can't. We've been too full of fear, too full of shame. We've been consumed with our own failures. Father, all across this room, I pray right now that you would Bring your forgiving, merciful love to bear on these failures, on these fears, on this shame. Whatever we've been trying to fill our lives with that's not of you, pray across this room that you would convict us of, of sin. By your mercy, Show us your hands, your feet, your side. Reveal yourself to us. And as we see it, we repent and we believe. We repent and we believe.